Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Well, here we all are, ready to read and think and talk our way into the past, or rather, to imagine ourselves into that space where history is made and remade, claimed, fought over, turned into a story. Hello and welcome to this session, Bringing the Past to Life, here at the Sydney Writers' Festival in Carriage Works and being streamed all around the country too. Before we begin, I'd like to recognise deep time and history too, and to acknowledge that we're here on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the original storytellers of this place. I pay my respects to Elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are here today. I'm Kate Evans and I present the weekly broadcast and podcast, The Bookshelf Program on ABC Radio National, with my co-host Cassie McCullough. I'm especially interested in what fiction can add to our sense of the past and the ways in which the archive and research can be transformed. So I'm delighted to be here with this panel of novelists. Geraldine Brooks, whose novels include Year of Wonders, March, The Secret Chord and Horse, which last night won Literary Fiction Book of the Year at the Arbius. <coughs> Hi, Geraldine. <laughs> Pip Williams, whose novels are The Dictionary of Lost Words and The Bookbinder of Jericho. Hey, Pip. Hello. <laughs> and Sally Collin-James, author of One Illumined Thread. Sally, welcome. Now, what I'm not going to do is spell out your considerable collective research and writing expertise and the huge list of awards, because I'm hoping that, you know, what you do comes out in the discussion. But instead, what I've asked you to do is to each offer us up an object that takes us into your latest book. So, Geraldine Brooks, your latest novel, Horse, it takes us from the 1850s to 2019. Can you describe the object you want to bring to us, what it is and why it's remarkable? The object is the complete skeleton of the racehorse Lexington, which is, was my way into my book, Horse. I heard about this skeleton that had been mouldering in the attic of the Museum of Natural History in the Smithsonian Institution. And I heard about it quite by chance. I was at a, at a lunch and there happened to be an official from the Smithsonian who had just delivered that skeleton, found it in the attic and, and delivered it uh, to the International Museum of the Horse in Kentucky where it was restored to pride of place in an exhibit on the history of the thoroughbred and why Kentucky was the center of thoroughbred breeding in the US, which basically came down to this horse, who was not, the, not only the most famous and fastest racehorse of the 19th century, but also the greatest stud sire in American history. And every racehorse you've heard of in America is a descendant of Lexington. Mm. And we'll get back to that horse, 
both that horse and the story and how it is that you, well, isn't that a terrible thing to say? I'm about to say fleshed out <laughs> that skeleton <laughs> and that history. But Pip Williams, there's an unexpected theme and connection here. Your latest novel is The Bookbinder of Jericho, mm. set during the years of World War I. And what have you brought us? Well, I could bring, I couldn't bring a whole skeleton, <laughs> but I could bring a bone folder. And so there is a link because this is made from cow bone. Um, and it's a very, a tiny um, tool essentially that is, is really essential to the bookbinding process and the bookbinding industry. Uh, and without it, the, the women in my story, Peggy and Maud, who are two young women who work in the bindery of Oxford University Press, they couldn't do their job without this. And we wouldn't have all those beautiful leather-bound books uh, that some of us are lucky to have on our bookshelves without this object. Um, but has anyone seen one of these before? And in some ways, that's, that sort of is emblematic of the characters in my book. They're unseen. The people who make the books are often unseen. Um, and so, yeah, this, this object, I suppose, uh, represents not just the book industry and that, and that work, but the people who do it. Mm. And we'll get back to the many folds mm. of that story as we go <laughs> Very on. Very nice, Kate. <laughs> I do love a segue. <laughs> Now, Sally Collin-James, your debut novel is One Illumined Thread and it stretches from the present in Adelaide right back into the ancient world. But what is this object that we're going to imagine in front of us and how did you come to it? Well, my object is a black glass vial. It's palm-sized and shaped like a vesica piscis or a vesica piscis, however you like to pronounce it, that lovely curvilinear shape that sits in the palm of um, the hand. And I wanted to give my women um, artisan missions that perhaps they wouldn't have been allowed to do at the time. So the reason why my character, Ella Sheva, makes this, at first you'd look at it and you'd think that it was just um, a, a trinket. But she developed, invented a way to hide the stopper so that inside she could secret a, a funerary uh, memoriam. So in a lot of ways that links back to the, uh, the essence of what you're saying about skeletons and, and bones. Um, so she could hide these memoriams away from King Herod for the sanctity of the uh, burial of their children. Well, I wouldn't dare be so obvious as to make a comment about the sands of time being melted into your story because <laughs> that wouldn't do what it... But look, these are all objects that connect the bodies of the past to our ways of reading into history. And Geraldine, this skeleton of yours, as you said, it was mislabeled, simply horse rather than Lexington. But I want to ask you about other labels in this book of yours, names. So in your novel, we meet characters with names like Theo, Jess, Thomas J. Scott. But the central person of the story is labelled instead Warfield's Jarrett, Tenbrock's Jarrett. Tell us what it means to write into that possessive apostrophe of slavery. I was attracted to the story thinking it was just going to be the story of an exceptional racehorse uh, and what happened to the horse during the Civil War, which was entirely dramatic and wonderful. Uh, and I felt 
really lucky to have come across it because I had recently become horse crazy. So it was good to be able to work on something that I wanted to be thinking about anyway. But I was, I was 10 minutes into the research when I realized that it was not just a story about a horse. It was a story about race. And it was a story about how horse racing in the 19th century was built on the plundered labor and skills of enslaved black horsemen. And Jarrett actually existed. We know that because there is a painting of him somewhere. It's missing. But it's a painting of Lexington being led out by Black Jarrett, his groom. And I went into the records to try and find him. Um, it was very hard. I could find some mentions of him. And I know he was with the horse at various times. But about what it was like to be him, nothing. So I had to research the history of enslaved black horsemen. And it is true that enslaved people did not have their own surname. They had the name of their owner. And um, Jarrett passes from hand to hand, as enslaved people did, being torn away from their families and um, having very little agency over his own life. And just how central were characters like Jarrett to these early days of that racehorse industry? Fundamental. And it's an, interesting, it's an interesting sidebar to the story of enslavement in America because what these guys did, their skills uh, and their expertise, was so valuable to the white thoroughbred owners that they had a special status. They had certain um, abilities that were denied to other enslaved people, like they could travel across state lines because they were bringing the horses back and forth. They could uh, accumulate their own property, which allowed many of the most talented trainers and jockeys to buy their own freedom eventually. But they were absolutely fundamental to racing, and racing was what everybody cared about. It's hard to imagine now, but it was absolute passion of the 19th century American scene. And thoroughbred owners drew so much wealth and prestige from it. And the enslaved black horsemen were, were critical to them. Mm. And we'll get back to that story. But just pausing again on the idea of labels and injustice, Pip Peggy, the young woman at the centre of the bookbinder of Jericho and the other women who work with her in the bindery at Oxford University Press, how are they labelled? What are they called? Uh, so Oxford University Press had a book bindery that was divided in half and one side was called the men's side and the other side was called the girls' side, uh, despite the fact that on the men's side there were boy apprentices, uh, a few, and on the women's side, most of the, oh, sorry, the girls' side, most of the employees there were women, though there were a few girls as well, uh, because the girls could start there from about the age of 12. Um, but that distinction was in writing, mm. <laughs> so it wasn't just a colloquial uh, distinction. It was what those two sides of the bindery were called. There's more than one way in which these women are shorthanded and labelled, though, in your book. One is that they're girls, and then there's also where they sit in Oxford. Mm. 
Mm. And they're sort of two categories broadly, aren't they? That's right. Can town you explain that? Town yes. and gown. And anyone who's been to Oxford uh, probably has noticed mm. this. There is still a town and a gown mm. divide. Uh, town are the people who live and work in Oxford. Perhaps, you know, they have generations of family there. Uh, and gown are the people associated with Oxford University. Uh, and they do sort of come and go to some extent. You know, the university is a little bit seasonal. Uh, so the, the Oxford itself has an influx of students during term time and then they leave. Um, and this distinction has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and in the time I'm writing about, 100 years ago, it was still very very much a part of the lives of my characters. And World War I changed it a little. Mm. Well, and, and whether and how much these sites of conflict change the world is something that, again, I think comes through in all of these yeah. novels. But, Selling Colin James, I wonder if one of the issues at the heart of One Illumined Thread is that the women from the past that you're interested in are barely named at all. Mm. I mean, how visible are they to the historical story? Mm. Well, in the case of Elisheva, who's based on the biblical character of Saint uh, Elizabeth, the fleeting mention that she gets, and in terms of being the forebearer of the of the of the prequel, so to speak, of um, of Jesus, it seems strange that it's just a blink of an eye and uh, she's out of the story. And it's interesting because as you're talking about labelling, I was thinking uh, um, in my Italian section of the novel, all the different names for Italian women at the, at the time to describe what their status was, who's, who they were, were they married, widowed, mothers, um, daughters, barren, whatever it was. Um, and, of course, that didn't apply to men. But also with Ella Sheva working at the time of Herod, so in between 40 BCE and um, 4 uh, CE, she was termed a shugata or a crazy woman because of her desire to create for the sake of creating. You know, Lord forbid if a woman did anything outside the domain of functionality. So that label and that sense of being vindicated um, from stereotypes that purport to diminish and denigrate a woman for being a creatrix is very central to the themes and also mm. in the books of um, there's, there's parallels there. Well, and I do want to get on to that question of creativity and art, but before I do, for people who haven't read your book, could you just briefly explain where your book takes us? So you mentioned that we go into the ancient world of the Old Testament um, and we are in Adelaide, which yes. I think we're familiar with. Yeah. But where else in history yes. do you take us? Yeah. Well, perhaps I could quickly refer to the moment that inspired the novel itself when I stood before Albertinelli's uh, visitation in the Uffizi Gallery. And I was aware that me, as a, um, a modern Australian woman, looking at a painting from Renaissance Florence of women, supposedly from 2,000 years ago, Elisheva and Mariam, or Elizabeth and, and Mary, and that sense that they had walked from there, the, the painting was a kind of a portal or a doorway or a window, they had walked from their side of history, I had walked from mine, I was lost in the gallery, I didn't mean to end up there, and there was this alignment of stories between worlds. 
So it seemed very natural for me to therefore construct a, a, a polynarrative that was set in the time of the ancient women, so in around uh, 20 BCE and then Renaissance Florence in the 1500s and in modern-day Australia. Well, and, and thank you for making explicit the role of art and creativity and, and paintings as possible portals, because that actually takes us back to your work, Geraldine, um, in Horse. I mean, you mentioned that the um, enslaved trainers are there in paintings, but they become painting and the representation of these characters becomes a really important part of your novel. So what did those paintings open up for you as a writer? So uh, it was important to paint these thoroughbred horses at the time because uh, there was this is pre-photography. And uh, there, it, it was part art, part commerce. It was a way of advertising how wonderful your horse was. So they're very accurate paintings of the horse. But the two main equestrian painters of the day also liked to include... Uh, the black horsemen in the paintings, and they're very unusual in the run of depictions of the black in art, because mostly if you look at English art of the time, uh, if there is a black person represented, they're there to aggrandize the white. Uh, they're there in a servile capacity, or they're there to exoticize the painting. And these depictions of the, of the black horsemen are fascinating because the men are individuated and they are portrayed as very skilled professionals and they're caught in the moment of doing work. And so in my novel, I have a black art historian become fascinated with this as a, a contrarian uh, example to usual depictions by white artists of black subjects. You also make artists in the 19th century characters as well. And as you were talking, it made me think about Hilary Mantel's use of the character of Holbein yeah. in, her, um, in her Wolf Hall series as well. So as you imagine your way into the work of the artist, um, did that give you a different access to thinking about that representation, thinking about the work of art? Well, you know, I was I was a fine art major uh, in uh, <laughs> in college, and I haven't had a, haven't had much chance to explore that interest uh, uh, previously. But when I got fascinated with the skeleton and the work around the skeleton at the Smithsonian, I went to the Smithsonian to learn about osteopreparators and how what they do is helpful to advancing science. And while I was there, uh, a curator from the art museum said, you know, we have a portrait of the horse that you're interested in, and it's not on display, it's in our study center, would you like to see it? And I went with her to see it, and I said, did this painting come to the Smithsonian with the skeleton? Uh, and she said, no, it came in a very unusual, it, it, it's, it's so weird, it came in a bequest of extremely important, edgy, contemporary art from the immediate post-World War II period when aesthetics were being reimagined by people like Pollock and de Kooning. And it was in a bequest from a famous feminist uh, gallerist, Martha Jackson, who was the champion of the edgiest contemporary art. And every, everything else she gave to the Smithsonian was 
contemporary art of that period except for this one traditional oil painting. And I got so fascinated by why she might have had it. And then the artist Thomas Scott turned out to be a fascinating man in himself who uh, had wanted to be a doctor but couldn't afford the medical school fees and then became uh, an itinerant painter of thoroughbreds and a writer for the turf press of the day and then a volunteer in the Civil War uh, fighting on the Union side. So there was a lot to work with with him. I love this insight that you're giving us into the way in which you're picking up these moments of history and then turning them into fiction. And so we walk through the 1950s with that that gallerist. But just to stick with the question of art, Pip, I mean, writing itself, of course, is an art. It's why we're all here. But in the world of your book in particular, it's not just the words inside the book that are being celebrated uh, in the story of your novel, but the craft and the practice of binding books, of making books. I mean, is that art too? And I guess I'm curious about the role of art and beauty in your character, Maud. Yes. Um, So today, bookbinding is an art, I would say, because the occupation of bookbinding has died out. Technology has taken over all of the functions of um, the women and the men in my book. And in fact, uh, when my own book was printed, I asked if I could have the printed sheets Mm -hmm. so I could fold them and then bind my own book. Um, And apparently the process is so mechanised that they couldn't get the sheets out of the production Um, in one go, they could only give me the sections. So a machine now does all of that. It does all of the folding that the women used to do. Um, And so I did get uh, seven copies of my book just in loose sections so that I could sew them and glue them and bind them. Um, And it was, you know, partly I wanted to do this so I, I understood fully the process and what it felt like to make a book. Um, I had already learned how to fold those pages um, from a book binder. Um, and so I, I had that experience in terms of writing those sections of the book. But in terms of it being an art, I think it's probably better described as a craft. Um, and it certainly was an occupation. The work that the women in my book do, Peggy and Maud, Uh, really could also be described as factory work because they weren't given the pleasure of seeing a book from beginning to end, which is what someone might do today when they're binding a book. Um, In fact, some of Peggy's frustration is that she gets sheets, the same sheet, and she folds the same section over and over and over again and is coming across words and sentences that are half-finished. And she can't read the end of the sentence because that's not the section she's folding. Um, And so I wouldn't call that art. (laughs) Uh, uh, But there is something very beautiful and artful in the finished object. Interestingly, though, and there's metaphors everywhere, um, even when you're not looking for them, when you you start writing a book and, and delving into the history... Everything that the women do gets covered up by the men's work. (laughs) So you don't see the folding, you don't see the sewing, um, and that's what the women do. But what you do see is the the covering of the boards, so the leather or the cloth binding. What you do see is the gilded title uh, and, and author on the spine. And all of that work is done by men. 
Um, you mentioned Maud. So Maud is Peggy's twin sister. They're about 21 years old when, when the book opens. Um, they're identical twins and, and they look exactly the same in every way, but they're very, very different people. And it's interesting how you just, you're asking about, I suppose, the, the artfulness of, of Maud. Her, what she prefers to do more than anything in the world is fold. So the thing that Peggy is, is really learning to dislike, her sister loves, but she takes it into an art form. So she folds all day at work in that sort of factory setting, but they bring home sort of rejected sheets of paper and she has uh, at her fingertips in their narrow boat a pile of papers which she folds into beautiful objects, um, swans, flowers, little boxes that hold secrets. Um, for her, paper folding has become an art form and, and also a way of being, I would say. Yes, art and ritual and the, the dance of the work of these women is something that I think you, you celebrate for us yeah. in your novel. But Sally, art and creativity, you've already you know, said that this is something that you're very interested in, but it seems that it's the practice of the art making especially, so the making of paints and pigments, yes. the blowing of glass. Mm. What is it about the practice of art mm. that interests you so much? Well, I think when you think about that folding you're talking about and the lady that prepares the, the, the skeletons, Jess, as I read, there's this dance that happens. It's, a, it's, this, it's this beautiful dance and, and gracious series of movements. And I found the same. My, my three women across the 2000s, years each have a an artistic profession the modern Australian woman is a textile conservator that works especially with gold thread and the uh, Antonia Ugolini who is the real life wife of the artist who painted that painting of Elizabeth and Mary the visitation and she is a paint maker she decides she wants to make white paint as a way as a way of reprieve really um albertinelli the real life renaissance artist was known to be a bit of a carouser and a wild man and, and irresponsible and unreliable um, but he was uh, obsessed with with white and so i wanted to put the success of his white into antonia's hands so she's a paint maker and that movement and that rhythm and when you're grinding paint there's a, a figure of eight a sign of uh, infinity movement that comes with doing that and every stage is so precise and so measured because it will come down to particularly for a white it can be the glint in somebody's eye or a halo you know there was a lot of divinity associated with it but also it forms the basis to every canvas so it's this multi-purpose intricate colour that uh, the people were um, adamant had to be the right white. Um, and then, of course, in Ella Sheva's time, her glass blowing. Now, when I travelled to Israel last year, I did try my hand at glass blowing, and it is not for the faint heart. <laughs> I don't think I've ever sweated and smoked. You know, the whole 
there's a real uh, unglamorous side to, paint, to making white paint as well because of the lead at the time and the problems that we know now occur with working with lead. But these women, they make a dance out of it. It's that um, anchoring of the vision of the final outcome and all the human processes, the sweat and the blood that goes into it before that. And to me, that's, that's poetry made physical. Um, and certainly, I think that the way women approach these industrial tasks in the pursuit of something beautiful is particular to the way the female brain works with the heart. Well, thank you too for reminding us of the, um, the sweat and the work of art as well, and indeed the work of writing, which is something that I want to get to now because I'm curious about risk, um, imaginative and intellectual risk, I guess, and what that means for a writer. And Geraldine, I'm curious then about what's at stake when you decide to research and write your way into the perspective of American slaves and indeed into that still highly contested area of the American Civil War. Well, yes. Um, I was extreme trepidation uh, when I realised that this was the direction that the story would have to go. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to run for the hills, actually, and I thought that there was a greater than 0% chance that this would be the last book I ever wrote. Uh, I was looking up macadamia nut plantations in, <laughs> in northern New South Wales. Uh, but I realised that I had, to, I had to go there because uh, if I was going to tell the story of this horse, I couldn't leave out the absolutely integral role that enslaved uh, horsemen played in his success. And to erase them from the story would have just been morally reprehensible. So I knew I was going to do it, and then once I'm committed to doing it, in the 19th century, I have a 20th century story about the Smithsonian, and I realize I can't leave the story of race and injustice in the 19th century as if it's nothing that we have to bother ourselves about now because obviously it is very much a critical issue and I had to just do the work. I had to do the work and I'm, I'm pretty lucky where I live in Martha's Vineyard because there's been a really robust black community there for over 100 years and I'm lucky that I have a lot of friends in that community who are incredibly generous sharing their lived experience and... One thing I've learned from my friends uh, in that community, it's, pretty, it's a pretty privileged community on Martha's Vineyard. Um, professors, judges, professional people, celebrities. One thing I've learned is no amount of education, wealth, prestige, or even celebrity is gonna keep you safe. Every single one of my black friends has had an experience of either intense terror or humiliation. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe some people here might recall the Harvard professor, Henry Louis Gates, who is also a TV presenter and extremely well-known man, was dragged off his own porch in handcuffs by a cop when a white person saw a black man trying to enter a nice house. And the cop arrived and challenged him. And three minutes later, he was in handcuffs in the back of a police car. Mm. 
So, and we will get back to that question of doing the work and going into the archives. But Pip, just staying with that issue of what's at risk in imagining your way into the past. I mean, it's class that's particularly at stake in this latest work, I think, although gendered history is in there, the story of refugees, particularly um, Belgian refugees in England, the ways in which the histories of the First World War are made and remade, but also stories of disability. And so I'm wondering if any of these aspects in particular made the writing feel risky to you? Um, I, th I think the answer is yes, but I think there's greater risk not writing about these things that you don't see in the history. Um, and, and so I, I think you can answer that question in two ways. Um, I, didn't, I didn't feel like uh, I was taking a huge risk with the material that I was looking at, unlike Geraldine, I was still looking at uh, women's history, I was still looking at white women's history, actually, and so I didn't feel like there was a huge risk doing that. Um, my background is probably lower middle class, it's not upper privileged, it's not quite as privileged as, <laughs> as the gown um, part of my novel. Um, I have had the same sorts of aspirations as well as, as my characters. Uh, but I was wanting to, to make sure that my novel was peopled with the people that I am surrounded by. Um, and that includes people from various backgrounds, but it also includes people um, with a different experience, lived experience of life, people who um, experience the world differently and who are experienced differently by the world. And it was important to me that they were included in my story, but that they were not tropes in my story. Um, and so the risk was that I turned some of my characters into tropes, that I made them two-dimensional um, or stereotypical, and I didn't want to do that. And so I tried very hard to um, put myself not so much in the shoes of those characters, but to try to understand that experience. And I, and I relied on... I relied on, I suppose, some of my own experience in doing that. And there we go right to the pleasure and the complexity of fiction, don't mm. we? But Sally, you're writing your way into ancient worlds and religious traditions, into Florence, into worlds that both are and aren't your own. So what challenges did that raise for you? Mm. Well, I guess the number one, my first anxiety was around humanising iconic saints. Um, because to me, to bring people like women, like Saint Elizabeth and the Virgin Mary, or Ella Shava and Mariam, that I, as I've come to know them, to me, to focus on the femaleness of them and who they were and what their conversations sounded like and what did they talk about while they were grinding grain, um, is not a demotion to take them out of the realm of the religious. And I was very, I was very, very concerned about that because I'm very respectful of other people's beliefs and the veneration towards those figures. Um, I felt very assuaged to a, a certain degree when some devout 
religious people read it and felt that they could connect with it. I was very, very relieved about that. But the other risk for me was the idea of um, translating into modern-day accessible language the, the nuances of all these people. And, of course, the history of Judaism, that was in and of itself. I'm glad I, I didn't know what it would take to become vaguely familiar because for every year that passed and I was trying to get a handle on this complex and extraordinary religion... Um, the further away from understanding it I got. And I was very fortunate um, to make contacts all around the world with um, Orthodox uh, Jewish people and non-practicing Jews and to, to really grow to appreciate this, this one generalisation that I can make, and that is they, they are people open to debate and discussion and con conversation. So my concerns at not being able to epitomise that for Elisheva and Mariam, I worried a lot about it, was completely annihilated very quickly in the sense of they were so happy instilled in that culture is a culture of interrogation of, of what is and what should be and how things are and who practices in what way. So it started out as being a, a very grave risk for me, but ended up being uh, something of an ally to me, which was I didn't expect and I was very grateful for in the rendering of that, of that particular era. Thank you. Now, what I want to turn back to, in a way, is, um, is the research, is the stuff that sits behind your fiction. It's a great balancing act, isn't it? How to use original historical fiction, but still uh, use historical research, mm. but still write fiction. Geraldine, how deeply does the archive lure you in? Lure me in? Only as far as the story demands that I go. So for me, the research has to follow the story. I do the research as I'm writing. So I let the story tell me what I need to know. Then I go and try and find that thing. And once I've found it, I keep writing. Uh, so I think there's a, a risk that you get so lost in your research. You love it so much and you'll find out some fascinating thing and it doesn't the story doesn't need it, but you're going to cram it in there anyway. Because <laughs> you, you climbed a mountain to get it. You know, you slept out to those Cleveland archives and it's going in there. So I try, and, I try and resist that. What responsibility do you feel that you have to the history, though? I, I follow the line of fact as far as it leads because that's where the interest is to me. And uh, I quoted Mark Twain who says... Fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. Uh, and I think that's true. The weirdest things in my book are the true things. <laughs> are there things that surprised you in researching this latest book? I'm wondering if there are times when the research might shift the direction of your fiction. Yeah, I'm very much like Geraldine. So I tend to do a bit of reading before I start my books. Um, just so that I have a sense of the, the overall structure of the history within which I'm going to write. Uh, but then I just start writing and I then go to the archives to elaborate on the ideas that the story is um, throwing up for me. And yes, sometimes the research will um, highlight something that I didn't previously know, 
but actually does really enhance the story. And so I will go down that rabbit hole. Um, like Geraldine, I'm also very keen to stick to the known facts of history. Um, in fact, I do that to, to an obsessive degree, uh, even to the point where, you know, every, every, every word that I mentioned in Dictionary of Lost Words was published at exactly the time <laughs> I say it was. I even researched a cricket match that was, um, you know, that was, it was a very minor point in my book, but I researched the score and, and the weather on the day. Um, and so that's really important to me, but I, I treat the history like a scaffold and I weave the history through that scaffold. Um, some of the things, though, that I suppose surprised me as I was doing the research is I was interested in the stories of working-class women and their experience of World War I. Um, and first of all, the experience of women is hard to find in the historical archive uh, because especially war stories, there is a focus um, on men's experience. And so I thought one way to um, understand women's experience is to go to women's art, uh, their poetry, memoir, biography, uh, painting. Um, and I did find that very useful, but when you interrogate that, the art, women's art from World War I is the art of privileged women. Mm. It's not the art of working-class women because, as Virginia Woolf said, to be an artist, you need a room of your own and 700 a year. Mm. Um, a room of your own, I think, can be metaphorical or yeah. physical, but if it's metaphorical, the way I think of it is it's the time and space to do your art. Now, working women didn't have that. Mm. And so we don't really have, other than through diaries and letters, we don't really have an account of working women's experience of World War I. And so I had to extrapolate quite a lot. Mm. Um, and, and I do that by, again, going to the research and sometimes the sociologists mm. <laughs> of the time and, and reading non-fiction. Mm. Um, but that, that was one of the surprises. The other surprise was um, just in my book, my book is divided into five sections and each section is headed by a book that Peggy and Maud are folding in the bindery. Now, I didn't know those books beforehand, and this was one of the really beautiful um, parts of the process of writing this book. As I came across a book in the archives, because I was looking for things that were printed and published at the time my characters were doing this work, again, trying to be true to the, the history, um, I would come across a book that I'd find interesting, and I would read a little bit of it, just as Peggy would have read a little bit of it. And I would clock my reaction to that text. Um, and the thing that I found surprising but also hugely enjoyable was, um, I suppose, Peggy's reactions sometimes, um, you know, I've fictionalised them, but, but her reactions are seeded by my reaction mm -hmm. to that book. So I really enjoyed this process of coming across texts in, in the process of my work just as Peggy would come across them in the process of hers. Well, you're both obviously very disciplined researchers, for which I commend you because I know that whenever I'm in an archive, I go off on all sorts of tangents. And just before I ask um, Sally a question, I will say that we are going to be turning to questions from the floor and also from the people watching all around the country. Now, 
Sally, are you as disciplined as these two? I'm curious about what types of byways and distractions you might have found yourself in as you made sense of Florence, the ancient Middle East, mm. even the work of a contemporary conservator, yeah. which is... A Florentine character, Antonia. Antonia was the real-life wife of Albertinelli, the painter of the painting that stopped me in my tracks for its image of an elder and a younger woman and the way that the elder was looking at this younger woman with such support. And the impact it had on me led me, of course, first to research the painter. And when I found out the type of person he was, I thought, oh, goodness gracious, that's not what I had hoped. Um, I wonder <laughs> what his poor wife, um, uh, who she was. And of course, there was nothing, 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 literally for about 18 months. And I found this scrap of a writ in Latin that stated that... Um, Albertinelli died at a very young uh, age from a horse jousting accident in Lequertia. It's like the punchline to a joke. And um, she was then hauled in to account for his debts because he squandered all their money and she didn't know. And uh, in this particular writ, once I had it translated, she, uh, Raffaello, the great artist, was calling her in for 50 gold florins, which is enormous amount of money for a widow and a mum living in Florence at the time, uh, leading up to the sack of Rome and the Florentine siege. And so because there was so little information about her, in a way there was a lot of permissions granted, but there's so much about the context in which she lived, then the, the, oh, the labour of narrowing down each of these worlds to something that reflected through the eyes of the women but in keeping with every historian that's going to pick up this book and, and, and know what sort of work's been done on it, was I'm sure you can uh, agree, fashioning those tales through the eyes of the woman with also kindness to the context that existed. And uh, just to, to finish my answer, I was listening to Dava Sobel and she was, her latest book is this incredible uh, non-fiction work about the women that mapped the universe, that took slides and, and were responsible for interpreting all the constellations, all these images. And one of these women had written, in, this is in, uh, I think, the 1880s, had left a message saying, women are, have always been part of the past just not part of history. Mm. And what that struck, I'd already read about Antonia, I thought, now that's the thing for me to keep in mind as I'm beating myself with a stick. <laughs> Why don't I know what the weather was that day in that particular <laughs> word? Um, yeah, I, I felt that was beautifully articulated. Um, that was probably on my part, though, a waste of three hours trying to figure out what the weather was <laughs> on that day. So funny. Did the you sandstorm know. blow in? The, oh, the people in the Middle East were so patient with me. The funny questions. <laughs> Was there? Do you think there would have been a sandstorm at the time that Herod's gangrenous <laughs> genitalia was? Like Sally, this this is just a story. They said yeah. you're not writing a textbook. Now, what we might do, if you wouldn't mind turning up the house lights, so that you can start to make your way to the questions. And we actually have a question from Christina at Bindoon Library in Western Australia, and she's curious to know what your favourite fact or piece of trivia is that you learnt while researching your books, mm. Geraldine. Ah, uh, I, have, I have two that I, I love. Uh, one is that 
um, for all the high-tech equipment in the osteoprep lab at the Smithsonian Institution, the real work of cleaning bones is still best done by bugs. <laughs> and they have a room called the bug room, and into it they take the desiccated carcasses of the animal that they are preparing, and they put it down on the floor, and it's just like watching my son's high school football team on buffet night. <laughs> These domestic beetles just go in there and they take every shred of tissue off the bone without causing any damage to the information that the bone contains. So if you did it by chemicals or mechanical means, you would be destroying some of the structure of the bone. And this is the best way they've found to do it. So I thought that was terrific. And, and we can hear the sound. Yeah. Like you, you literally evoke the sound of that munching um, was, in your book. It was snap, mm. crackle and pop. Mm. <laughs> and we do have a question here from the floor. Um, I don't know the answer to this, but um, Geraldine, um, when you were talking about risk and you said you had the support of the black community in Martha's, Martha's uh, Vineyard, what was the reaction from the broader black community in the United States to your book when it so, came out? And my, would you do it again? Like, would you go into that territory to again? To my immense relief, it's been pretty good. Uh, I haven't had a lot of blowback at all. I had a couple of cranky reviews, but um, I, I actually thought that they were pretty lucid. The criticisms they made were things that I could accept uh, that I could have done better. But there was none of that kind of, like, you have no right to do this. I didn't get that reaction at all, uh, so that was a relief. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure. If the story presented itself and I needed to, I guess I would, I'm not looking to. I'm just, you know, I'm just looking for the story that sets me on fire and, mm -hmm. and then I'll, I'll go where I have to go. Thank you, and we have another question here. Hi, good morning. Thank you very much for telling us your stories. I'm trying to write a uh, 38 letters about a 16-year-old boy who, from uh, Eden in New South Wales, gets on a sailing ship in World War I, goes to San Francisco. He has the most amazing adventure in his 18 months that he has left of his life. Um, my problem is, you've talked about research and creativity. I've done all the historical research. However, you talked about uh, when research becomes sensitivity. I love that. I have the problem that this story is so good. <laughs> Where do I insert my creativity? Where do I, do I change the story? <laughs> this story could write itself. It could be a history textbook about World War I and Australia at war. Why don't you write a narrative history? Well, that's, that's what I was sort of thinking of. But uh, the facts... Because that, that is a creative art as well. Yeah, yeah. definitely. That's, yeah. that's the thing. So I'm trying to work out what's to do. And listening to all your research things and then you're creating these characters based on truth... My character is all there, he's, he's done it, he writes mm. it, he writes beautifully from the age of 14, which is yeah. amazing. Fabulous. It, it sounds like you don't have the kind of voids in the historical record where you have to, if you're going to engage with the material, you have to make the imaginative leap. But if you've got that, mm. wonderful narrative history. I know, I'm probably complaining too much. But <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd like to give you a hint as well. Yes, please. And it's going to sound really obvious and you're going to think, oh, I know that. But that deep, deep listening... That deep listening, because yes, it's a character, it's a real life ca character, a uh, person, but it's a protagonist of something. 
and the way into that storyline, you think it's through the writing or the thinking or the researching, it's that very deep abstract listening, that humility of following the line, that calling rather than thinking it onto the page. Thank you very much for that. And, um, and Pip, perhaps in your answer here you could reflect on the the fictional telling of mm -hmm. stories from World War One, mm -hmm. as well. But we have um, Hayley at Gloucester CWA Hall, who, you know, as you've already said, um, the story in the Dictionary of Lost Words, you've got, again, conflict between town and gown. And Hayley is curious about what writing that experience of that tension was like for her and her relationship with Lizzie. Mm. Um, yeah, Perhaps so you could explain who Lizzie is. Yeah, so in the first book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, um, Esme is a middle-class woman. Lizzie is a servant who looks after her um, from, from the big house. Uh, and I very deliberately didn't write Lizzie's story, um, though, because I wanted it to sit between the lines of Esme's story, which essentially is where it was. Um, and in history, if we know anything about women, what we tend to know is about women of privilege. Um, and the story of working class women is between the lines of that. The women's suffrage movement is a really good example of this. Um, the women's, uh, women uh, in Australia had, had suffrage long before women in the UK. But women in the UK gained uh, the, the right to vote in 1918, mm. but only some women. Uh, and yet that date is still used as when women had the right to vote. But you had to have a degree or property to satisfy the um, rules of voting. It wasn't until 1928 that working-class women got the right to vote. Um, and I'm, I forgot what the rest of the question was. <laughs> um, well, look, because we've only got a couple of minutes left and, I, you know, I had another page and a half of, of questions for you and we have shy people in the audience not asking. So, you know, there are questions of the responsibility to history, of how you deal with social movements, of, you know, race, class, representation. We could talk about all those things. But you know what I actually want to ask the three of you? What is fun about writing historical fiction? I mean, we've got horse racing and spectacle and longboats and art studios. What's great about doing this? Geraldine? I just love to do it. <laughs> I just love to do it. I love to find that implausible truth from the past where you can know something but you can't know everything and then just go in there and, and yeah, follow the line of fact. But when that thread phrase imaginative engagement. Yeah. Sally, what's fun about doing this? I mean, it's obviously, it's been hard work. You've gone down all sorts of imaginative and research byways. Why is it worth it? Well, for me, the physicists give a good answer and they know that depending on the in, um, intention of the person doing the experiment and what they think the result is going to be, it vitalises the experiment differently. And what I love about the historical fiction is that as long as we're casting our attention into these spaces of knowledge, then we're vitalising it. And to me, that is worth the journey, every second, every hair tearing, crying, sobbing, mm. um, and at the other end for whatever anyone thinks of it once it's done, just vitalising those imagined spaces is everything, mm. it's everything. Um, Pip, there are entire libraries and bookshelves full of stories of World War I. What is the pleasure in revisiting and rediscovering that 
period for you? Yeah, there really are a lot of books and I didn't want to write a book that had already been written, which is usually about men's experiences of war or women's experiences of waiting for a man to come home. I was really interested in the lives of women who work and just kept yeah. the country running and also the lives of people who flee, so refugees, which we don't read very much about but which is very prescient at the moment. Um, in terms of what I enjoy about writing historical fiction, and I suspect it would be any fiction. For me, these books came out of a sense of curiosity. And being able to spend three years of my life pursuing something I'm curious about, trying to explore questions that I have, seems an enormous privilege and a whole lot better than marking essays or, <laughs> or writing, <laughs> writing public health plans, <laughs> which is what I was doing beforehand. Well, look, it is also, of course, an enormous privilege for us here to be listening to this. Um, our guests will be signing at Bay 22. Um, and could we also please acknowledge the signing interpreters who've been working so hard today, Will and Bella. Here... Here at the Sydney Writers' Festival, I'm Kate, and we've been speaking to the writers Geraldine Brooks, whose latest novel is Horse, Pip Williams, author of The Bookbinder of Jericho, and Sally Collin-James, whose novel is One Illumined Thread. Please do thank them all. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.